The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This morning we are going to end our study through the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. Uh, On our earth, there are mountain peaks referred to as the seven summits of the world. These these mountains, they are the seven tallest mountains for each continent. And and so they include the obvious Mount Everest in Asia that stands at 29,032 feet. Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa uh, stands at 19,341 feet. Uh, Now, you might not know this one, Mount Everest in Europe It's 18,510 feet high. Uh, Probably don't know Mount (laughs) Aconcagua. Let me try that one again. Aconcagua in South America. My Spanish is a little rusty. Uh, Standing at 22,838 feet. You might know of Denali in North America in Alaska, 20,322 feet. Mount Vincent in Antarctica. And then Mount uh, Cozy, Co- why do they have to do hard names? Mount Kosciuszko in Australia at 7,310 feet. Now, if you're going to attempt to summit one of those seven, I encourage you to start with the one in Australia at only 7,000 feet. Uh, but, but why do I bring that up this morning? Well, it, it is my opinion that our passage this morning, it deserves to be among the seven summits of Scripture. It is one of those soul-arresting, affection-stirring, grander-creating, life-altering, missionary-producing passages in the Bible. It's one of those high pinnacles in Scripture. And so even right now, before we begin, I want you to pray. I want you to pray right now for two things. First, pray for me. Pray that God would give me grace to set before you this passage in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses it to enliven your heart to God's glory. So so even now, just pray a quick prayer. And then secondly, pray for yourself that the truths contained in these two verses would take hold of your heart and soul in such a way that you would be forever changed this morning. That's the way I've been praying going into this sermon. And, And I want to encourage you to pray that as well, even a five, 10 second prayer briefly. Pray that you would be awakened to God's glory and that you would then make it your life's ambition to live for his glory above all other things in life. Speaking of glory, one one way you could sum up the high points of human history is in terms of a pursuit of glory. It, It doesn't take long for you to read through the Bible in the beginning of human history before you come to the people of Shinar who set about to build a tower to the heavens, to express their own self-sufficiency and to make a name for themselves. And then you think of the empires of Alexander the Great, of Genghis Khan, of of the Spanish, French, and British empires, a never-ending pursuit of glory. Indeed, right, it was said of the British Empire that it was so vast at one point that it was known as the empire on which the sun never sets. But we can go beyond that of land exploration and empire creations when we think of of our pursuit of transcendent, glory-filled human accomplishments. 
And we can think of the explorations of the atmosphere, right? We think of the Wright brothers of Wilbur and Orville Wright who took flight for the first time in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And some of you, maybe, maybe some of you, you might remember what happened on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first humans to walk on a surface other than our Earth as they stepped out of their Land Rover onto the moon, declaring, what, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Other glory-filled moments of human history consists of sporting events like the 1980 Olympics when the, you might remember the miracle on ice happened. I, I, I wasn't alive when that happened, but I watched the movie. Uh, and, but, but this was when the U.S. hockey team defeated the four-time defending gold medalist Soviet unions to take home the gold. And this was during the height of the Cold War. And so this win, it galvanized and it ignited patriotic pride within America. We, we also think of those moments in the Super Bowl or the NBA championships where dreams become reality and where normal people are turned into fanatics. We are striving for, we are seeking some kind of glory in our lives. Finally, we can think of the great speeches of recent history from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to Winston Churchill's We Shall Never Surrender speech. And if you haven't read that, uh, I encourage you to read that one. Uh, to Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena, to uh, John F. Kennedy's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You speech, and then I think the one we are most familiar with, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. What makes these speeches so special? Well, they, they capture our imaginations, and they, they, they transport us to a pursuit of something transcendent, something greater, something beyond, something higher than ourselves. There is within each one of us a desire to aspire to something greater, to live for something transcendent. Now, listen, it's not wrong for us to be a glory seeking people. In fact, it should be natural to us because God has put this hunger within every one of our hearts because we were created for worship. And so all of us are glory seeking in life because the object of our worship is glory. And so the question this morning, it isn't, are you seeking glory in this lifetime? The better question to ask is, whose glory are you seeking? Our hearts will always gravitate toward this searching and seeking out of glory. And so if we don't align our hearts to seek God's glory, then we will always invariably seek glory for self. Well, our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, they call us to, it calls us to permanently fixate our hearts and our lives on the most transcendent, the most beautiful, the most worship-creating, soul-satisfying, purpose-filled, life-fulfilling, never-ending reality in all the universe. And that is the glory of God. This morning, Lord willing, you will see four aspects of God's glory from our passage. First, you'll see the essence of God's glory. Secondly, you will see the effect of God's glory. Thirdly, you will see the expression of God's glory. And then finally, you will see the extent of God's glory. 
And so let's read it and let's see. You, you, you decide. You be the judge. Is it here in our text? Let's read Ephesians 3 verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think. To him be, glor- uh, to him be glory according to the power work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that you'd open our eyes, that you would enliven our hearts, and that you would renew our wills to live for the glory of your great name. Stir our affections during these next 30 minutes or so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first we see this morning the essence of God's glory. Now, now remember the context for these two verses. Remember the prayer that we studied last week. Week, right? We we prayed, and, and you you should be. Hopefully, you're praying. You're following the three fourteen challenge. Now, if you weren't here last week, I, I challenged our church to what's called the three fourteen challenge, where you pray three times a day for fourteen days. The prayer Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, verses fourteen through nineteen. So three times a day for fourteen days. We're seven days through it, uh, and, uh, and and so just seven more days of this. But, but in this prayer, Paul says, he, he prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened through power, by, uh, by, his, through, uh, by power through his spirit, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of God's fullness. And so after this prayer, then Paul comes to this verse. Now, now, if Paul were a modern day humanist or if he were an everyday American or if he were a nominal Christian today, verse 20, in, in response to that prayer, verse 20 would probably read something like this. Now to us who are able to do through hard work and skill and perseverance what others cannot do. But Paul isn't a me-centered Christian. No, Paul is a God-centered Christian because he knows that if there is any hope for verses 14 through 19 to come true, it must all be up to, what does our text say? Now to him. What one pastor, he opened his sermon on prayer by saying this. He said, prayer changes nothing. Now, he didn't say that to get a reaction out of people or to be provocative. No, he said that to highlight the point that it isn't by the eloquence of our prayers or or it's not through the strength of our faith that change happens. No, our text says it's not based upon us, but rather now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. It is the God of our prayers who changes everything. And so for us to grow in our prayer life, we don't need to first and foremost gain an in-depth understanding of prayer itself. No, the greatest catalyst for a vibrant prayer life is an in-depth knowledge and experience of the essence of God's glory. Knowing God himself, who he truly is. In Exodus chapter 3, after God appeared to Moses in the 
And the, uh, it's called the burning bush, but really, ironically, it's the non-burning bush, right? It's burning, but it's not consumed. And so God appears to Moses in the non-burning bush. And after God had called Moses to lead, out his, to lead his people out of slavery to Egypt, Moses, he asks the Lord this question in Exodus 3.13. He says, now, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? To which God replies by saying, I am that I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He has sent me to you. He goes on to say that this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so question, who is this God in our text who is able? He is the I am of Exodus chapter three. Now, now what does this name mean? I am. Well, first, it means what it implies, right? It means that he is, that he exists within himself and that he is dependent on no one or nothing for his existence. And maybe for some of, the, some of you, maybe like the one or two or three of you in here who are philosophically inclined, in philosophy, we would put it this way. This name means that God alone, he is independent and that everything else is contingent upon him. He is self-existing. He is the I am. But also, not only is he self-existing, Exodus 3 says that our God, he is eternally existing. There has never been a moment when God did not exist. If you are a parent, no doubt you have heard this question from your kids and you have maybe stumbled through trying to answer this question. Daddy or mommy, who created God? I remember when Noah, when he asked me this question, to which I replied, buddy, no one created God. He has no beginning and he will have no end. In the world of apologetics, there's this syllogism called the Kalam's cosmological argument. Now, I don't expect you to remember that, but it's an argument for the existence of God using the existence of the universe. And it goes something like this. Everything that begins to exist has a transcendent cause for its existence. Point one. Point two, the universe began to exist. Point three, therefore, the universe has a transcendent cause for its existence. In other words, that means because something caused the universe to exist, that means something must precede the existence of the universe. Now, now while this is a powerful tool to, to be used regarding the creation of our universe and, and to prove the existence of God, listen, this cannot be used to describe God himself, for he was never created. And there is nothing more transcendent in all of existence than God himself. He is the eternally existing one. Final, final observation regarding the name of God. And, and, and the essence of God's glory is wrapped up in his name. And that is his immutability, or we might say his unchangeableness. He is un- incapable of change. 
John Piper, he, he once said this. He said, people change their mind because of unforeseen circumstances or because of weak resolutions, right? We, we waver and so we change. God foresees all circumstances and has no weaknesses. Nothing in all creation takes him off guard and backs him into a corner where he might have to act out of character or compromise his integrity. James 1, it says that, that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not only is change unnecessary to God, for God, our God, he is actually incapable of change. He cannot change. For since he is the highest degree of all perfections, there is nothing greater for him to become. Nothing, no greater state for him to exist in. He is the highest of all perfections. I am that I am. Our God, he is the self-existing, the eternally existing, and the unchangeably existing I am. So let's then read Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21 in light of that truth. Now to the I am, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. I, I pray that time would time fails to, to give you a full uh, survey of God's essence. But I hope that that little bit gives you a taste to want to know the essence of God's glory. And that leads us to our second point, And that is then the effect of God's glory. Notice from our text that this I am, he is omnipotent. Now to him who is able. Now, now maybe in, as an example to illustrate this, say, say that you, you had to have an emergency surgery and, and you incurred tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt due to this surgery. And as, as a friend came to your house to check on you, right, to bring a meal for you, he or she says, I would really like to pay off all of your debts if I was able I wish I could do this for you because I love you. Your friend, he, he or she has the desire to do this, but not the ability to carry it out. Listen, church, when we pray, we are not praying to the one who merely possesses desire alone. No, we are praying to him who is able. He is able with all of his sovereign, omnipotent power to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask. Or think. He is able. Listen, he is able to free you from that besetting sin and that addiction that ensnares and entangles you. He, he is able to heal you of your disease and your illness. He is able to provide for your daily manna and to meet all of your needs. He is able to restore and to breathe new life into your Marriages. He is able to take your wayward child and to make him a missionary one day. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is able one day to give you a new, perfected, transformed resurrection body when Christ returns to this earth to make all things New. He is able to revive this church and to use her to see many lives transformed by the gospel. He is able to bring and raise up and send out labors into the harvest from this church. 
And listen, he is able to save a multitude from every unreached people group in our world, from all tribes, tongues, languages, and peoples. This is why I said earlier that this passage, it's a missionary producing passage. It, 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 it infuels and it, and it stretches our faith. This is why William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Gladys Allward, and many other missionaries. That's why they left the comforts and the conveniences of their homeland to travel to a people who were hostile to the truth of the gospel message. They went because they believed that their God, he is able to do far more abundantly than all they could ask or think. Before he left for Burma, someone asked Adoniram Judson. He was the first mission, Southern Baptist missionary that we sent in 1813. Someone asked him, Dr. Judson, in a, in, with a kind of a condescending tone, what are your prospects of the conversion of the heathen? And that's an unfortunate word. That's what they used to use. Um, to which Judson replied, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. Adoniram Judson, he believed his God was able to do far more abundantly than all he could ask or think. He believed that his God was able to do the unthinkable and the impossible. May we be like that then, of a George Mueller who would pray for the same request for years on end with full confidence, knowing that his God, he is able and that in his perfect timing, he will prove faithful to all of his promises. But not only is he omnipotent, not only is he able, the I am, he is also omniscient. Look at with, look with me what their text says, that he is able to do far more abundantly than what all we could ask or think. So, so this comes to mind of those needs that you haven't spoken to anyone else. The needs, the desires, the worries, the fears, deep, residing deep within your heart. Those needs that you haven't even spoken to God about yet. Listen, he knows. And he is able to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so I just want to pause and ask you this morning. What are you asking the I am for? What, what is something humanly impossible that you are asking God to do in you and through you? Do you really believe that God can save your family member who is so infatuated and so intoxicated with the ways of this world? That he is able to take a Christ hater and to make him the greatest missionary the world has ever known with the Apostle Paul. Do you believe he is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask? Or think what, what ministry dreams has God put within your own heart, but maybe you've cast them aside or you're reticent to do them because you think there's no way that I could do that. What, what are your dreams for this church? Seriously, what are your dreams? What are your desires for God to do in, among and through us? Maybe, maybe to be honest, maybe some of you are thinking the dreams are gone and the glory days are behind. Now, now, if we were left to our own strength to build this church, you might be right. But listen, our text this morning, it says now to him, to the great I am who is able to do far more abundantly 
than all we could ask or think. Do you believe that God is able to do a mighty work in us, among us, and through us to reach Broken Arrow and beyond with the gospel? Do you really believe that, church? That Because if we don't, right, if we don't believe that, we might as well call it a day, shutter the doors and windows, and never return. If we don't believe that truth. But listen, if we believe that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, then let us, with hearts full of faith, be a church who attempts great things for God and expects great things from God. Listen, church, our God, he specializes in the impossible. Next, Paul shows us how he accomplishes this impossible work in the world. Look at me what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work where? Within us. Notice whose power it isn't. It's not according to our power. No, it's according to the same power that Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3, verse 16. Notice that connection. Look, look at your Bible with me. Notice that Paul is so confident that God will answer his prayer in, verses, in verse 16 that now he's praising God for that same prayer request. Now, now you might be feeling this morning, I don't feel God's power at work within me. I don't feel strong. But listen, that's the whole point. God isn't looking for the strong, for the self-sufficient, for the abled bodies. No, he's looking for those who are pure in heart, for those who are weak in self, but strong with God's power. And he's looking for those who are absolutely dependent upon his grace. He's looking for those who believe that when the strength is needed, strength will be provided by God. Do you not remember, brothers and sisters, what Jesus was able to do with the five loaves and the two fish? The boy merely gave him all that he had, and then Jesus was able to do with that far more abundantly than anyone there could ever ask or think or imagine. The boy knew he could not feed the great masses with his meager supply, but he believed in the omnipotent power of Jesus. And so he gave Jesus all that he had, trusting that Jesus could do the impossible with his very little. There are some of you who are resisting the Lord's leadership this morning. You're holding back from what you know God is calling you to do. Because maybe you're, maybe you're afraid. Maybe you feel weak and incapable, insufficient for the task God is calling you to do. Listen, church, I feel that frequently as your pastor. But God is not looking for the self-confident. He's looking for the God-dependent. And for those he has promised to strengthen you according to, in measure with, in proportion to the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. This is the effect of God's glory. This is what God's glory produces within us. A deep belief in God's ability to do the impossible and a deep desire for God to do the impossible through us, his church. All for the glory of his name. This leads us to our third point this morning, and that is the expression of God's glory. How is God's glory expressed in this world? Paul says this, 
to him, in verse 21, to him be glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, after God led Israel out of their captivity to Egypt, the Lord instructed that Israel create what was called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And recently, as, as a church, we've read through the book of, of Exodus in our two-year Bible reading plan. And although I know some of you were prone were, and were tempted to skip over this part, uh, you, I know you read about the ornateness and the detailed design that the tabernacle was to be constructed according to. And then after all of that detail, the climax comes to a head in Exodus chapter 40, when it says that Moses erected the court around the tabernacle in the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And it says that Moses finished the work of constructing the tabernacle. Do you remember what happened next? The Bible says in Exodus 40 that then after the work was done, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And there are different words to describe the glory of God in the Bible. But the word used here is referring to the Shekinah glory of God, the radiance and the splendor and the majesty. And an old, old timer's word, the refulgence of God's glory as it was put on display in the tabernacle for all to see. It was in the tabernacle and later in the temple where the glory of God, his presence, his essence, his wonder, and his weightiness dwelt among his people for thousands of years. That is, until Christ came to this earth. John chapter 1 verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, that word Translated as dwelt in most of your Bibles, it can literally mean to tabernacle. So read it this way. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so I hope you see where I'm going here soon. In other words, the same glory of God expressed in the tabernacle, confined to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, was the same glory expressed in the person of Jesus that's why John would go on to say that, that we have seen his glory, the glory of God. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's why, John, uh, that why Jesus in John chapter 2 said this. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. He said that because he was referring to his body, to the new temple, where God's presence, his essence, his wonder, and his weightiness would dwell among God's people. And so why does Paul say to him, be glory in Christ Jesus? Because it's in Jesus that God's glory is now supremely expressed. Not in a building, not in a tent somewhere, in Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. But not only in Christ Jesus, Paul says, where else does Paul say God's glory is expressed? Look with me, in the church as well. You see, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised to give his followers the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, to live and to dwell within us. So don't miss this. Where does God's presence reside now in the world? It's not in a building. It's in a people. God's presence dwells within the church, which now means that the church is the temple of God. Recall what we studied a while back in Ephesians 2 when Paul said, In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're being built into the temple. And that's why Paul would say elsewhere, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple, Paul would say. To him be glory, not in the tent of meeting, not in the tabernacle. To him be glory in the church, in the new temple. And so all of that to say this, do you realize who you are? And what is the significance of this church? Your membership at New Life or your visiting here this morning to New Life. It's not just another membership in an organization. In our gathering every Sunday, it's not just an event you attend. No, listen, church, God's glory is expressed in you, among you, and through you. You are the temple of the living God. We, we don't gather this morning then to see what can I get out of this time? Because when we think of this way, who's at the center of our heart? Whose glory are we seeking when we think this way? Our own, right? So we don't gather this morning as a bunch of consumer Christians. No, may it be our heart's desire that the glory of God would be manifestly expressed through us as we lift high the name of Jesus. Paul would say, this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. May God's name may it not be reproached or reviled, but rather may it be said of us individually and here at New Life Baptist Church, to him be glory in the church. Final observation. From this point, and that is the relationship of God's glory expressed in both the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, now to be sure, Paul's not equating the two, right? Christ is the head. We are the body. However, what Paul is saying is that the two are now inextricably connected. From the moment Christ drew his last breath on Calvary and for all eternity, the two have become one. You have been united by faith to Jesus Christ. And so what God has joined together, let no one or nothing separate. God is glorified in his son, Christ Jesus. And Jesus is glorified in his church. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Which leads to our final point, And that is the extent, the extent of God's glory. How long will God be glorified in his son and in the church? What does Paul say? For a few years, for some decades, for maybe even a century or millennia? No, he says throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Listen, church, I don't claim to be a fortune teller, but I can tell you what's going to happen in five years, in 50 years, in 500 years, and for all eternity. And that is this, God will be glorified. God's glory knows no bounds, and it will know no end. Habakkuk 2, it says that the glory of the Lord, it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And on that day, the Apostle John says in Revelation 21, he said this, I saw no temple in the city for its temple, right? So you're tracking from, from Exodus to Jesus to the church, this theme of temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. And so until that day, church, 
we can have great confidence that God will be glorified in his church, that God will be glorified in Jesus throughout all generations because Jesus has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. And and as we come to a close, and before we enter into our time of response, I want to end by asking you this question. Are, Are you living as though the essence of God's glory, the effect of God's glory, the expression of his glory, and the extent of his glory, are you living as though God's glory makes any difference? In your life. Maybe there are areas of your life where you're not believing. Maybe areas where you're not depending. Maybe areas where you're not committing the entirety of your life to live for the glory of the great I am. And so if that's you, I would just encourage you to first repent of that. And then be renewed in the truth this morning that God desires. And he is able to do great things in you and through you for his glory. Believe that this morning. Commit your heart to that truth this morning. And maybe you're here this morning and your answer is no as well. But, it, but it's because if you're honest, you would say, I'm not living for his glory because I don't know this God. I don't know Jesus. I know about him, but I don't know him in a personal and in a saving way. And if that's you this morning, I, I would invite you. Jesus's invitation is open for you this morning. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His arms are open wide for you this morning. If you would turn from your sin, trust in him as your savior and commit to him as your treasure and Lord in life. And if that's you, I would love to to talk with you after the service, how you can follow Jesus today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.